Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're featuring a conversation on Collective with director Alexander Nano and FLC's deputy executive director, Eugene Hernandez. The 2020 New Director's New Film selection begins as a seeming expose into a tragic accident and gradually turns into something deeper and more shocking in this revelatory documentary about state neglect, which is now playing in our virtual cinema. In October 2015, a devastating fire broke out at the Bucharest nightclub collective, killing 27 people that night. In the following weeks, while the country was still reeling, nearly 40 more people who had suffered burns and other injuries died in hospital. With astonishing access, director Alexander Nano follows the trail of evidence surrounding the incident, along with the film's journalists and the newly installed Minister of Health, creating a universally relatable nonfiction thriller that uncovers the depths of governmental corruption. Let's go to the conversation now, presented by HBO. My name is Eugene Hernandez. I'm the Deputy Executive Director at Film at Lincoln Center and Director of the New York Film Festival. Uh, Welcome to this Film at Lincoln Center conversation. Um, We're really looking forward to sharing this conversation with you. For those of you who are watching with us live and also uh, greetings to those of you who will be listening to this after the fact on YouTube or on the Film at Lincoln Center podcast, welcome to this conversation. Uh, Please join me in uh, a virtual applause, a virtual welcome to the director of Collective, joining us from Bucharest this evening, his time, Alexander Nano, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's a, How are it's you? A, How are you doing, Alexander? Tell us about what's happening in Bucharest. I'm doing fine. I mean, we have a semi-lockdown, so people have to be uh, off the streets at 11 in the evening. Shops are closing down at 9. Uh, we have to wear masks, uh, even outside. So um, we're holding up. I mean, more and more people get sick now around us. That wasn't mm-hmm. the fact, I don't know three weeks ago, but now really people, we know a lot of people that start to get sick, families. Um, But we're holding up and uh, we hope for the best. Very good. Well, we send you the best from uh, from Film at Lincoln Center. You know, we, of course, continue to dream about every these, all these conversations we record and and stream live. We always dream about sitting with you uh, in a theater. We were supposed to have your film with us uh, earlier this year at Lincoln Center and at MoMA and, um, you know, now we're uh, bringing the film uh, in first run release. But, uh, you know, if, if nothing else, we have an opportunity to talk with you live today and on our podcast and on our YouTube channel. So thank you for for sticking with us and, and continuing to share the film with us um, in this uh, alternate way. It's great we have at least this possibility. We were just discussing <laughs> if, uh, how this pandemic would look like if we would have no Internet. <laughs> Absolutely. You started working on this uh, investigation and this exploration and and this documentary very shortly after uh, the incident in 2015. Right. Correct me, by the way, if I make any uh, mistakes in right. the fact in the timeline. But I believe you know the, this happened in October of 2015, and by November you were already diving into right. this uh, this film that would become. Yes. So tell maybe just to help our audience understand the foundation of of your work. Um, Tell us about those early days. Uh, you know, your your immediate response was a creative one, was an investigative one. So, if you don't mind sharing with us some of the early uh, thoughts, ideas, and conversations you had that led you to immediately start, uh, you know, within days or weeks, uh, exploring this for what would become a film. Right. So basically, I mean, after the fire happened, uh, we immediately had. Uh, a huge, you know, a, a huge demonstrations and young people taking the streets, organizing on Facebook under um, under the uh, tagline "Corruption Kills," because everybody understood that this club should not have functioned. It was a popular club. You know, many people went there. Many, many different generations. They had a lot of concerts there, uh, and everybody understood that the endemic corruption of the Romanian society that for sure, I mean, starts with the political class, which is, you know, and the way they think, the way they work is inheritance from the communist system. So corruption is in their uh, DNA. Uh, and suddenly everybody understood that, that corruption is not just the fact that they are stealing public money, that corruption really 
as an effect kills people. And the shock was greater because everybody thought that it could have been them in the club or it could have been their kids in the club. Uh, and basically, I understood that something new was going to happen now in the Romanian society. It felt like a 68 in Eastern Europe because also the countries around us, like Hungary started, you know, um, demonstrations in Poland for everybody for their cause, but cause, but against the political class for sure. Uh, <clears throat> but still it was so much happening and it was such a national tragedy that it was hard to grasp how to make a film. And I, I make my films until now are, are really purely observational um, cinema. Uh, and I always look for characters that I can follow. And what overlapped with that was the fact that there were many injured people after the fire, over 180 uh, burn patients. And uh, Romanian authorities that we knew, the, the whole government, we knew it's a government of really corrupt people, of really incompetent populists, um, came out, you know, having doctors and uh, the leading health officials uh, by their side and saying, we can, we are on top of this. We can take care of everybody. We have one of the best healthcare systems. There's no reason to fly these patients out to burn units that Romania did not have. Uh, and that was a big lie. And we understood that pretty fast, uh, but unfortunately nobody could do much because the press, played along with the government. They didn't ask the right questions. And the only ones, uh, ridiculously, the only ones that, that uh, asked the right questions in the beginning and uncovered the lies, uncovered the lie of the fire department that said, we didn't, we didn't know the club existed. They proved within one day that they even authorized it. Then there was a big lie that there is a burn unit that was newly opened in Romania fully modernized uh, and they were saying the patients are getting surgery there and again these journalists they were talking about that and are the characters in the film uh, discovered that this burn unit is closed actually with the lock it was never opened it was just open for the film cameras with the minister of health and the hospital manager in order to justify them the way they invested there to get their bribes for the, for the equipment. And we understood that if we, want on, if we want to take a look at this relationship between power and people that is now really, you know, getting a new development, uh, it might be the best way to, to, to do it through investigative journalists that investigate the power and try to give people really facts and the truth about what is just happening because more and more people kept dying in the hospitals more and more burn patients. Uh, you started to say that the only journalists who were able to find, you started to talk about the only journalists who were able to uh, uncover and explore and, and uh, make progress in this investigation. Um, uh, tell us a little bit more about those journalists. Help us understand the, 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 the media situation, the media culture uh, in your country at this time um, and, and why and how you found the sources of information that you did? So basically the, the, the media landscape is maybe a bit um, comparable to the one in Italy, where you have moguls that control media outlets that have you know, papers and TV stations and so forth and radio stations. And then there are a lot of independent platforms, investigative platforms with uh, uh, really great young investigative journalists uh, that, uh, that uncover a lot of corruption. Um, and um, our journalists, I mean, the journalists that, that became the, the main characters in the film, in the first part of the film, are actually investigative journalists working at a sports daily, sports, the sport, mm -hmm. called the Sports Gazette, Gazeta Sportula, which is the Sports Gazette. It's the, old, the oldest newspaper in Romania. Uh, but it must be said that they were investigative journalists. So, they did investigate uh, things, but they did it uh, with things related to the sports world. So uh -huh. they, they managed to uh, investigate, for example, two sports ministers that had to go to jail. Uh, they really brought them down with the investigation and then they had, they had, they had to go to jail. 
uh, and many, uh, you know, big bosses of the football world that had to go to jail because of their investigations. And uh, Katalin Tolontan, the, 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 the head of this uh, uh, investigative team, uh, he was known as a dodgy journalist. So he, he was basically known that he's, he's very rigid and nobody really knew how he works. So we didn't expect him to say yes to our strange idea to try to follow his investigations that now suddenly went into the healthcare system. But because there was no reaction by other, by other journalists and because they, the, you know, the other media outlets just amplified what, what the, this you know, lying government and healthcare officials together with doctors were spreading, um, they felt the obligation to, to, to use their skills in the service of the people because it was a national tragedy and they felt the need to contribute. And that's how they started to investigate the healthcare system, which was maybe also to the advantage because doctors in Romania are treated as gods. It also comes out of the communist system where you know, doctors are bribed uh, and are gods. So you have to take off your hat in front of them and just uh, ask for their mercy and give them all the money you have, if possible, uh, for them to treat you. Uh, and basically they said, they thought like, all right, I mean, these are sports journalists. What, how can they harm? How can, could they ever find out the truth? Because we are smarter, we know what we are, we were, you know, we, were, we know how we mislead uh, the, 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 the public. So uh, they didn't take them seriously, but, um, you know, 25 years of, uh, of uh, um, experience that they had uh, was not nothing in front of these doctors. One of the, thank you for sharing that context. One of the, um, for our audience listening and watching this conversation, um, some may not under, may not realize the, uh, for the kinds of films you're talking about making, a verite film, a verite approach, um, this notion of access with subjects is such a fundamental component. And, and, and so I wanna, I wanna ask you about Verite as an approach in a moment, but I want to start by talking to you about access. Then we'll talk about the approach of Verite, and then we'll also talk about editing. Because I think that as I was watching the film and re-watching the film, I was thinking about these three components that might help us, from your perspective as a filmmaker and our perspective as viewers, understand the, um, the process of, of, your, of your artistic approach, um, which, has, uh, which relies so much on these, these three components. So let's first talk about access and help us understand both how you think about access and 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 uh, characters or subjects? Uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't mind. I don't want to um, diminish the the use the, the word of a, describing a subject as a character, but uh, you understand uh, maybe where I'm coming from. Yeah, let's call it protagonist. Um, <laughs> call it protagonist. So, so help mm -hmm. us understand uh, your approach generally as a filmmaker, but also in this particular case, how you first navigate that that question of access protagonist subject uh, subjects who are you going to try to develop a relationship with because your access um, especially in this case of the culture the media landscape that you've just described is going to be so essential to actually uh, making headway and, and exploring more deeply I mean the thing is there was no film with no observational film you never know what the story will be so basically you just have a, a hint of a, of a story uh, you meet characters and you have a feeling that uh, even visually, there is enough personality that can deliver, as in a fiction film, basically, a character, an actor that can sustain a long mm -hmm. film. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> and I start from a very simple thing always, because I, I'm, I'm aware I don't know what will happen. I only know that I get fascinated by, by, by a character. And, and then I have a very personal curiosity. In this case, it was I became aware that although I'm an avid reader of, um, of press and having, I grew up in Germany, so there's a lot of press of quality. So we really have quality press. And from a very young age, I was, you know, reading like most of the people I was around the high quality press. But in a way I never, I understood that basically I never really thought about the persons behind. Although, for sure, we knew journalists, we knew the critics um, and so on, but I never thought about investigative journalism as how does that really work? How do they do it? 
Um, and so I started from the question, I really want to understand how a journalist gets his information, how he verifies it, how is he meeting um, whistleblowers? Uh, and so I went with this simple idea to him and said like, listen, if, you're, if you continue or if you have another investigation coming up, could you imagine to let us film that, to film your work? Uh, and he and Mirella uh, and Rosman, we, we were in the meeting, they denied. They said like, no, newsroom has to stay protected. For sure, we were aware of that. In a way we expected it because we were aware what a sensitive, um, what a sensitive space that is. Uh, and that they're really now up for something against the government that is really, you know, that did lie in, in, in you know, in that dimension and people died and so forth. Um, but I said, okay, good. You know, give me another, let, let's have another try. Then I, we, we met him again with our team, with, with our investigative team. We had a, a research team of, of two or three journalists and we really also had already information from inside. We met, we met doctors that were frustrated and wanted to talk and they, they realized that you know, it's really serious that we really are serious when we are saying we want to follow this for months. Because nobody could really understand what I mean with it would be something observational. We want to follow you for months, maybe edit another year of film. We don't know what will happen. You also don't know what will happen. So they had no really no imagination for that because it's impossible to have it. Uh, and uh, so I just said, like, if something's coming up, Please, you know, if you change your mind, just give me a call. His newsroom was not even far away from, from our office and from my home. Uh, and one day he called and said, like, listen, we have something. You know, we have a hint to something. We don't know if we're right. We don't know if we're wrong, if it's just a big mistake, everything. But we could try. We could try to film. The thing is that to build trust, um, First of all, they, he never told me what it is. So basically when we started filming, I had to start to put together the puzzle pieces. I, I didn't have an, enough knowledge about uh, chemistry, disinfectants, uh, in, in hospital infections. I really didn't know about hospital infections and that they are really lethal and that they, are really exist, that they exist only in hospitals and that they really become smarter and stronger by eating each other, you know, and eating their... DNA and become stronger but for there, there's no medication in the end to kill them anymore. Um, and so we started filming their, their newsroom sessions and when they started to go after this and the whistleblower start, started to come in with, um, with medical data that, that showed that the burn patients died because of infections and not of their injuries. Um, and another step in gaining trust was that I offered him because it was so sensitive, to find a way to leave the footage with them in a, you know, in a, in a safe space to which we would have also access by him, so that he he knows that nothing they discussed that they would leave the newsroom until their their investigation breaks, uh, and that was the point where he took the full risk and said, no, no, it's fine, mm. you know, which I trust you. And that was a good point. I mean, that was, I think, the, the, the point where it all became a journey together because things started to happen so fast. Uh, and me being in the room while the things were happening, in a way, we became embedded, you know, like we really became embedded mm -hmm. and just danced along with, with their investigation, um, with them becoming uh, more and more unaware of, of our existence as somebody that is recording. Just to understand the context of time, uh, when you had when you had that first call from him, when you when you got the call back from him saying, "Let's try this," is that in 2016, 2017? When was that uh, roughly? Uh, that was 2000, end of 2015, beginning of 2016. So, so just really, it's still within within the same year. It's very fairly fairly soon. Yeah, it was within it was within the first three months after the fire. Okay. Okay. Um, and help us understand then, as this investigation continues, and there's so many twists and, twists and turns that we see in the film, um, help us understand 
Now I'm going to ask you this question about verite more broadly because you 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 decided you you, you work in a verite context. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a there's a strong tradition in documentary and nonfiction film of verite. Help us understand what verite means for you as a creative person, as a creator of of, of film, um, and how that informs your approach over the over the years that you're then following this process. Help our audience understand what that, what, what the, I don't want to say rules, but what the, the, what your, your approach to Verite, uh, how that guides you, how that uh, leads mm -hmm. you. Uh, basically, I discovered it for me from the first documentary I did, which I did on, on um, the rehearsals of a theater play by a very famous director uh, on Bergins, which was done at the Berlin, uh, Berliner Ensemble in Berlin. Uh, and I discovered how much you can get really from photographing in the right way, real people. Uh, and, and that's where I discovered in a way that, you know, if life plays in, uh, you know, plays in front of you, it's your job actually to be more uh, as, a, you know, work more as a street photographer. You just have to, you know, to feel what these people feel to understand what is going on and then really just try to find the right frame for it. And because I'm also uh, filming my, my, my films and I need to have the camera in my hands because I think it, it has a lot to do with how I see, how I perceive the things and how, you know, how I capture them. It's something that I learned when I was a um, first AD on, on, on uh, fiction films and I, I asked, one of the DOPs, a very talented um, DOP, um, I said, like, what, what are you doing while the director is blocking? It, you know, for sure, looking at the light, how things look and what the atmosphere is, but what are you looking at regarding actors? Because that was what interested me. And he said this thing that actually is the right thing and that I use all the time in my work, said, I'm looking for the right frame because every person has in a certain moment a certain emotion uh, and every emotion of a certain person with his personality and his thought process has has a certain frame so basically it's it is also what a street photographer does like his intuition for what is expressing this person's state of mind feelings and so forth um, and that i must say is is as valid in in non-fiction uh, as in fiction, because basically in, in Cinema Verité, you do the same thing. I try to disappear for the, for the protagonist. Once they accept me and once they trust me, and one of the main things in trusting me means once they trust that I will not judge them and relax in front of the camera and relax when I'm, I'm present there, uh, my job is to really start reading you know, on a, on a continuous basis, start reading the dramaturgy of life and the development of characters in time in front of me. And then, you know, I'm also editing. So basically I start to, you know, my brain goes like, okay, these 10 minutes have that and the dramaturgy that are the characters. That's what they said. That's what they feel. You know, what will happen from here? And I just try to stay as connected as I can, even if I... I don't know what will happen and I don't know what the end of the day will be. Uh, and that I learned during my third film, actually, that I have to stop to expect something from things, to expect yeah. a certain film to happen. Uh, and I learned that I just have to trust that, you know, life will bring you the story uh, and you really have to just be uh, emotionally connected to the, to the characters uh, and really try to have a very good intuition for what they're going to do next, what will be the next step. And that is something that I learned in theater because I worked in theater. And in theater, you have time to sit and watch and you have time to connect, to connect in a way with the, with the um, actors that you, you communicate in a way non-verbally. And you really start, you know, in rehearsals, you start to have the intuition for people, what, you know, what people will do next. How will they move? Mm -hmm. How will they, you know? 
and so, because you asked, you know, about my way of approaching observational, when I understood that I'm just about to, with the second film, I understood that I'm about to develop my own language. I, I thought like, okay, I, I, I love a lot of observational documentaries, but I hardly could find again the quality that the Maisels had, for example, in filming. Albert Maisel had a certain quality in, in, in filming. And I try to understand what it is and um, why I'm a bit, I'm not really satisfied by observational. Uh, and it was the fact that I was always aware in most of them that there is a filmmaker or that there is a camera person that is following life, that is trying to keep up with life and to capture life. And I thought like, yeah, that's, that's, that's the problem. And that's what, what was disturbing for me. Like, if I feel that somebody is there that is just a bit behind life and behind the characters, then I remain outside this, you know, outside the wall and outside the triangle where there is basically, you know, where you have characters and a DOP. I want as a viewer to feel like I'm there. I'm, you know, where the DOP is. Uh, and that's when, when I understood that with the camera, you really have to be in a way connected to the characters mm. that it never feels that you're lacking behind, that you're, that you're following them. It has to, you know, if the, if the camera is connected, the viewer will forget, he will start forgetting about the camera. And that's where, where he will be really connected to the, to, the, to the character, to the protagonist, and will not feel that much that there's a documentary filmmaker preparing in a way hmm. a story for him, you know? Uh, and that's what I developed more and more from, from film to film. Uh, and I think, yeah. When you're filming, is your camera in front of your face? Is it below your face? Where, where, where is the, and, and, then, and, then, and then tell us about who else is in the room with you. Do you have someone doing sound? Mm -hmm. uh, basically I use, I, I never liked DSLR cam camera. So I, I really need a camera that is connected to my body because I think it's we're working together and it's really dance. It's, it's a dance that you do all mm -hmm. the time. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so basically it's connected here under my eyes and because I'm a bit taller, Mm -hmm. uh, it's the perfect, uh, basically, it's the perfect uh, height to be on eye level with characters. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the, the sound person, yes, I have a sound person, but I'm not, not always. So many times when I yeah. feel that intimacy is better without, I have a sound recorder in my backpack and I, I have lavaliers on the, uh, on the characters. But even with lavaliers, I don't do it from the very beginning. I really try to see where the point is where people feel comfortable, where they really accept it and don't feel anymore that they are part of a film or that they know what is happening. Um, uh, so it's also a, a kind of, you have to have the intuition for every, every person is different and you have to see where his barriers of letting go are actually, of not being disturbed by a mic or... What have you... Uh, Alexander, what have you learned about human nature as it relates to cameras, having a camera? How does the camera impact a person in a space, in a room? These are journalists who are interacting with each other. They're doing their work. You're, you're, in, the, you're in their space. Um, help us understand your, your opinion about human nature as it relates to a camera in their presence and how you uh, navigated that in, in, in making collective. I mean, the big lesson from the last film, Toto and His Sisters, which was basically a film where the main protagonists were kids from 10 to 14. Um, and their surrounding that was also part of the film were really very poor people. It was in a, in a ghetto, in, in, filmed in a ghetto in Bucharest. So the first lesson I learned is that the lower the class, the less people have to hide. People are not hiding, you know, people are hiding in our society, you know, in our, let's say, um, circle of society. We all have masks. We all have to, you know, to play our role in our society. And the lower you go, you know, the, the less people have to pretend in order to play their role in society, uh, the more natural they are. Uh, 
so it, it becomes really a lot more complicated to help people get rid of their masks that they're putting on every morning. Um, and also there's a big difference in filming with children or with grown-ups. Because mm -hmm. for sure, children are much more natural. They understand, they, they are, you know, they, it's much easier to have an open relationship in a way, you know, without second thoughts where people think like, but what's, you know, grown-ups always think like, what's his intention really? Like, how will he benefit from it? Or you don't have that with, with, with children. You know, you can be really on the same level very fast. So that's one of the big lessons that I, I learned about our society. <laughs> we, we wear a lot of masks. Um, so in relation to the camera, it's, you know, that is basically the lesson. The, in, the, the controller of, of our image, you know, we all live in the morning before the pandemic, our houses, uh, trying to fit the image that we think is the one that other people want to see. Uh, and that's also what I thought maybe was at the beginning of the pandemic when people really started to go, you know, to, to be really disturbed by the pandemic. I was thinking about this thing with, with observational documentary filmmaking and what I just said about, um, you know, the roles and the masks. And I think it, it is disturbing, you know, if there's a rhythm in your life where you put up this mask every morning and you go out and you play this role and go back home where it's safe and where you, you can be yourself. Or... When this goes away, also the tension, you know, the, ten the, the tense situation that you go a step into every day out into, into life goes away. And I think that's also one thing that made us or many people um, a bit um, anxious when, when the pandemic started and we have to stay inside and, and you know, this role playing fell away. It's, it's a very good observation and it's also interesting. I'm gonna go back to what you were just saying about masks and, and the presence, the pre uh, prevalence of masks as you move up in a society. Your film Collective is, is in many ways exploring that, um, these figures that are at the highest levels of power in, in, in your society and the society that, we're, that you're exploring in this film um, are not just holding up a mask, but they're, they're deceiving in, in, in very complicated um, and deliberate ways. You're, you're tracking journalists who are trying to navigate how to, you know, um, not only explore and excavate a story, but also to pierce through those masks uh, through their work, but it's a very slow, like chipping away. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a fast, dynamic process. Uh, following journalists through their work, it's, 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 it's small uh, pieces, um, step by step. Um, so it feels like a, 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 a fitting description that you're that you're sharing, not only about human nature as it relates to cameras and and the way we navigate society, but but also. Um, uh, how power and stature and status can uh, can both corrupt and also uh, can complicate dramatically um, what is revealed, what is shared, what is known, what is hidden. Um, and that's also so, fascinating. You know, how does a journalist really get there? Because we're living in a world where they have really no intention at all to be honest, to be open. It's all, all the time just a PR stunt that creates uh, a different reality than yeah. the reality of their intentions. Yeah. We're talking about uh, the new film collective with the filmmaker Alexander Nanao. And I want to ask you about editing um, because you, you referenced it a minute ago. You referenced the editing approach happening uh, as you're filming. So just for our audience to understand this, this, this crucial phase of a, of a process of documentary filmmaking, and as it relates to this specific film, the incident that we're talking about happened um, almost exactly five years ago now. Uh, your process of, of picking up the camera and investigating it and shooting it with this approach you're talking about, this verite approach started exactly five years ago. Um, when does the editing approach start? In this case, when did the editing approach start and how did that uh, how did that evolve uh, as you were 
taking in you're talking you, you talked about writing a film almost like you're writing the story in your head as you're kind of seeing it play out but then there's these twists and turns and things that you couldn't have predicted or imagined that mm. are revealed to you so how does that interplay with the editing process and tell us about your editing process at the same time uh, basically i mean my presence in the editing room is i i do it during filming uh a lot I, I really try at the end of a shooting day to, to go to the editing room to, you know, to be there when the, the footage is, is played into the, into the uh, avid and really take already a look to understand what happened and if what I felt during filming and what I felt um, I captured, if it is there. Uh, and it is not, you know, it is not always the case you know it you, you had it can be that you have days where a certain character um gave you the chills and you thought like that was so intense that was so emotional i was really you know almost shaking during filming it and then in the edit, editing room the thing is that the image doesn't lie once you see it in the editing room you know who fooled you uh, and you, you really understand having time to watch people back and forth and understand how their minds work and how they manipulate or not, uh, you start to see where you've been fooled, where you're really in a direct human connection, somebody really managed to fool you. But you can't fool the camera. That, that's so fascinating about it then. Uh, so I'm watching footage and I really also sometimes start to play a bit around with color and to understand while I'm filming what the film is going to be about because for sure, after we started with the journalists, I suddenly understood, my God, that's, that might be really a film about journalism because it's so rich what is here. I, I didn't expect it to be, you know, to be so rich and, and that we will follow for a longer time. And then I really try to understand, so how does a film about journalism work? And I start to see movies in between the shooting days. I really start to see everything that was done. And to my surprise, I discovered that, for example, we don't have in Europe what you have in the States, this culture of films about journalism, cinema treating journalism as a pillar of society, as a co-creator of democracy, um, portrayed in cinema. We don't have it. Uh, or if we have it, it's just a marginal character or with Antonioni, you know, it's just a very artistic approach. Uh, to the reporter, it's it's not, but but it's it's not you know this institution, this institution as such as press. We don't we, we don't have it portrayed in, in European cinema, uh, and so I had to refer to the American films, and I had to watch all of them, all the good ones and also the bad ones, to understand how you use cinema to understand information, to understand how you know where's the limit between character and showing information of what the character is following. Uh, and for sure, Spotlight was one of the big inspirations. I mean, no doubt. I mean, it's so well made. And the, the, the way it works from character to information and how information affects character, mm -hmm. uh, it, for sure. It was important to see it because while you're shooting observationally, you need some anchors to hold on to. Because nothing, you know, there's nothing. You have to, to find a bit other models. You have to see how others have done it. Uh, but when we went to the, the editing room after the shooting, which basically ended much later than where the film ends, because the, as the film ends with the Social Democrats coming into power again, they really started as all populists to, to dismantle the state right from the beginning. Like they started with the judiciary system, replacing everybody changing laws and so forth. And so we had again, massive demonstrations, like 600,000 people in the streets. Uh, yeah. And it was such an emotion in the whole country that uh, we kept on filming. But after six months, I realized we're not doing the same film anymore. So something is wrong. We're, you know, we were taken up to another route now. And so we decided to, to stop and to go back, to, to go to the editing room and start seeing footage we also saw, you know, an assistant of mine really went to all TV broadcasters and uh, took out all the footage. They, they were very nice to give us all their footage on all the cases that we have filmed in the film, because I really wanted to see every perspective from other uh, reporters to understand 
what we have filmed and really have an objective image of it. Uh, and that took a long time. Organize, I mean, organizing and understanding what you have took a long time, but I start as, I guess, most of the editors do. I start by editing what I have felt were the strongest moments and, and the strongest scenes that describe character and story. Uh, but for sure, there was this big bet in the film uh, that uh, we decided we switch character in the middle of the film. So we didn't know how that would work. Uh, and while we decided that, and it felt normal that life gave us that story, right? That this guy came in and really gave us access and we could be inside the system suddenly. And everybody said, it's crazy, it won't work. Your film is about journalism, you, it, you can't change character. And I said, it's, it's true, it's right. I, I also don't know any, any dramaturgic rule to do it and that it would work, uh, but we have to do it. I mean, we have to try it and, and see how it can work. And then it took a while for me to understand what can keep a viewer in the film, although you, you change the character in the middle of the film. Mm. Um, and I, I said that, one or two times what it is, but I'm not sure anymore that I want to give it away. <laughs> I, it might spoil, you know, it might spoil a bit uh, the way you look at the story for, you know, for those that are, that still have not seen the film. Um, but we found a way around it and, um, mm -hmm. and you really follow a new character in the middle of the film. So that was one of the big bats in the, in the, in the, in the editing room. And therefore, for sure, one of the big things was this journalist basically in this investigation uh, had uh, sometimes on daily basis, they came out with new information. So we really had to compress that uh, in, mm -hmm. a, in a 90 minute film. That was one of the big things that was very complicated. To, to find the way there. And then for sure, how do you, how do you find the connection to the, to the, to the first characters in the film, to the victims and the family? Um, and that was something that uh, uh, George Craig, uh, one of the co-editors uh, found a solution to it because I was, you know, I didn't know how to do it. And, and uh, normally George comes in after several months into my editing room. So he, he co-edited also my, my last film. And he's wonderful with structure. He's really brilliant with structure because he's also a screenwriter. Uh, and he has a pace that I've never seen with anybody else. So he looks at three or four of my rough cuts and mm -hmm. within three or four hours, he builds new films out of them. I've never <laughs> seen that. It's, it's just amazing. And then we start looking at them and see, you know, and see what it is. And then he would just say like, so Alex, what do you, what do you, how do you think the story should continue like that? Okay. Then he, takes 10 minutes and builds it. You know, taking apart my scenes that I worked for months on and using <laughs> half that year, and, <laughs> which is a painful process for me, but it's, it's great, it's wonderful, it's really creative. Only here, there was another thing. We couldn't really play a lot around because here we had to be, we had the obligation to be true to the timeline of the real events because it is a very, in a way, it's an historic event for the country. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's uh, the investigation is like a historic event. You can't you can't play around with it. So we had to see how we can tell the story in a compelling way, but we couldn't really start to play around with when what happened. So the film is pretty much coherent uh, and and uh, true to reality in the in, in the timeline of of events and of characters how they develop. It's a great um, explanation. Thank you. We're talking about Collective with Alexander Nanao. Uh, we have time for just one more question, Alexander, and it's a question that came in uh, from one of the viewers who's watching with us right now. Her name is Chloe Smallwood, and it actually picks up on some of the things you were just talking about now and, and a few minutes ago uh, as it relates to the ending of a film, mm -hmm. this film in particular. So let me ask, let me read the question and you can uh, elaborate, uh, even though you started to touch on it a bit uh, just a moment ago. With your method of filmmaking, uh, where you don't know what the story will be while you're filming, how do you know when it's time to stop filming? Um, also, what is the what was the process? Uh, what was your process of deciding how to end this documentary? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very good question because that's what you try to to find out during filming. Like, 
so what is the story until here and where's the end and what does it mean and because many times you find basically what the story means or what what the premise of the story is you find in the editing room yeah because it's only there where you have the time to understand what you went through it's the time where you reflect basically on something that you just went through and didn't really understand it um it's very different with this film as i said um we got taken and, and filmed on because it felt like part of it. Uh, but, um, but then we understood that basically the story has to end there because um, for me as a, as a storyteller, I feel that when I managed to have the viewer identify with the characters and have the viewer really uh, in this emotional journey and, and uh, also informational journey in a way. So, if he is on this journey, um, I understood that at a certain point, so like, so how do you relieve out of this? How do you relieve a viewer out of this into his own life map? Because if it works, he will be really, you know, deconnected from his own life and it, it will be, you know, how do you lead him back and lead him back in a way that is not uh, uh, redeeming so that it was just another horrible thing that he saw, but he will forget it as we, you know, watch news about Iraq, Afghanistan, or Syria, and then you, you know, you, it was just news. Um, and it was just a feeling I understood that you really have to put it on, on the viewer's lap. You have to take the story and put it on his lap and say, in a way, say so, and what now? Because you will wake up from this and around you, the world looks like it looks. Uh, but this is something I must admit came in time because when we started to film the film, end of 2015, the world was not what it was end of 2016. So why we did the film, and my biggest concern was why we did the film, actually, it will be a local story. All I can do is tell in the most simple way a story about how journalists now, you know, do their work. Uh, and only gradually I started to understand, like, wait a minute, this, this looks like the whole world starts to look like this. You know, Brexit happened and the morning Brexit happened, I couldn't get out of bed. I mean, the shock was so big. I think it was the first time that I understood where we're going with the, mm -hmm. with the, with the rest of the world. Uh, and basically when we were in the editing room, the world was even worse. I mean, we had several presidents in several countries, uh, several populist presidents uh, that took over different democracies. Uh, and so in a way I, I understood that the only way to end it is to say, okay, basta, now what? How will you, you know, how will you manage to, you know, what is your own life attitude basically now in your community, in your surrounding? Um, yeah. I said that would be the last question, but I have actually just one more question. And it's, 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 uh, you're, you're in, it's 2020, you're in Bucharest, we talked about the pandemic, but um, how do you feel or what do you feel? Or do you have the space to step back and, and answer this question? What you feel the impact is or, or, or can be, not just from this film, but from the investigation uh, that happened that you're exploring in this film. Basically, yeah. I'm asking you sort of where things are now and if you're able to see with, with five years time, but just a couple of years since the film has been made, right. year and a half or so, um, what that impact might be or, or what you're noticing in this moment. Yeah. Local, locally, especially. Uh, basically the collective event in Romania was a turning point for the society. No, that, there's no doubt. So um, for example, in, in the time that followed, because of the, of the uh, investigations and the way the veil was taken off all these lies and the, the way the institutions work and the healthcare system works, there was in a way a feeling of revelation about something that you would either leave because it just looks like nobody can repair that or you're trying to change it. And that's what happened in Romania. We had really, uh, very high immigration numbers in 2016-17. Mm. Uh, uh, but at the same time, we had uh, 
um, civil society that that was born. It doesn't. It didn't really exist in that way before. Uh, and now in Romania, you basically have, besides the fact that the society is polarized, like everywhere right now, uh, you have a very strong polarization between the society and the political class, because. I think the best metaphor for this are again hospital infections. So, in a way, the the political class um, you you see people you know that that have to go and that have to step step. It's a bit like the bacteria, the hosp- this deadly hospital bacteria. You know, biosanic and they eat each other up and they learn from each other. And it feels like the political class has doesn't want to change. You just develop more and more skills to lie and to pretend and they don't want to change. But the society changed. And right now we feel a bit that the gap is getting bigger and bigger. Uh, And the question is just when it will be, you know, when it will implode. We have some reformative parties that are there since two years that try to change things and they have you know, we had elections six weeks ago, local elections, where, elect, where we elected the, the uh, local authorities, like the mayors and everything, and they won over several uh, mayors, which shows people want to change. Mm-hmm. Still, the biggest parties in parliament are the uh, uh, the, the, the old parties, the, the, the social democrats, the liberals, they're all coming from the same pool of people and have the same approach to, to power. Uh, but uh, we will have elections again on the 6th of December. We have elections every time you elect your president. We have here the, our big uh, general elections. Uh, and we will see what happens because we're in the middle of, the pan- of a pandemic and I'm afraid so many people will come out to vote. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Um, this remarkable new film is collective. We were really um, thrilled and honored to be able to, uh, to bring it to our audience. Um, film at Lincoln Center. So Alexander Nano, thank you again for sharing this film with us, for spending this time this evening, your time to talk with us about it. It was a pleasure. Um, Thank you for screening the film. It's an honor that the film is with the Lincoln Center. Thank you. Thank you and have a nice evening. To you too, everybody.